Please open your Bibles this morning back to Mark chapter 8, the passage that Andrew read for us this morning. As he mentioned, this is uh, the second message in a five-message stint as we work our way toward the confession of Peter, Christ's instruction about discipleship, and the transfiguration. And it's a privilege to bring God's Word as our pastor's away for a couple of weeks. He has the opportunity of preaching to some folks out in Colorado and some time for rest as well. And so we're glad to share him with others. We're so blessed by his giftedness and his teaching and praying that it will be a refreshing time for him as well. So in these five messages, if you want to kind of put a heading on all five of them, group them loosely, the heading that I've identified is, is simply this, spiritual understanding, spiritual understanding. And the reason for that is we are going to get to Peter's confession of Christ, which requires spiritual understanding. He was standing before a man But he declared him to be the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that was evidence of spiritual understanding. Yet, obviously, his understanding was not perfect. And in the accounts leading up to Peter's confession that we've begun to look at, we find that we're being taught by Mark the need we have for Christ to open our understanding that we also may confess Jesus Christ for who He is and learn to take up our cross and follow Him, learn to live not for this world, but for the world that is to come, learn to confess Christ boldly before man and find our joy in listening to the Son of Man, to the One in whom the Father takes pleasure." And as we prepare to look at the passage here in Mark chapter 8, I just want to again remind us of what Mark is doing in this gospel. And uh, go ahead and turn back to chapter 1, and let's look at the theme statement in verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark declares that he is recording the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is in the essence of God, the one who is God, the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the expected Messiah of the Jews. And and we find throughout the gospel that there are points where heaven endorses Heaven confirms exactly what Mark is recording for us. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, right before he began his public ministry, he was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And if you look at verse 11, after he comes up from the water, a voice from heaven comes saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Mark is saying, I'm, preach- I'm declaring to you that Jesus is the son of God. 
At the beginning of his public ministry, the father says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And from there, Jesus begins to preach the kingdom of God and call people to repent and believe the gospel. If you turn over then to Mark 9, we'll end up here in about a week and a half. Mark 9, at the transfiguration, and let me just draw your attention to verse 7, as the disciples, the three disciples are there in, in this glorious scene, we're told that a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so a second confirmation from heaven, a second confirmation from the Father. This is the Son of God, and this time with an instruction, listen to Him, disciples. And from this point on in Mark's gospel, Jesus begins to teach His disciples intensively about the coming crucifixion and the work of redemption that He will accomplish through the crucifixion, His burial, and His resurrection. And then one other passage, again, just to set the structure here of the book of Mark by way of review. If you turn to chapter 15, chapter 15, and look at verse 39, this is at the cross. This is the culmination of Christ's work. This is the completion of the work of redemption as the spotless Lamb of God gives Himself for redemption from sin. And as a centurion, a Roman centurion is witnessing Christ on the cross, verse 39 says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And it's at the cross It's at the cross where we find the culmination of Christ's work, where we find that the one who will one day crush the nations with his rod of iron is also the one of Isaiah 53. He is the suffering servant. He came to deal with sin, and he will come again for salvation. Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us. And the distinguishing mark, the distinguishing mark, of those who are under judgment and those who are received into the presence of God for all eternity is whether or not they have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Whether or not that they have confessed that Jesus is the one who came to die for sin and have turned away from their sin in repentance and turn to the Son of God, the crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, interceding, and returning Son of God for the forgiveness of their sins. And as we work then through this gospel, Mark is recording for us the life, the perfect life of Christ and His perfect ministry as He established perfect righteousness, righteousness that you and I receive when we turn to Christ. We're clothed in His perfect righteousness. We're clothed in His white robes. And it's on that basis that we are received. He established perfect righteousness. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father 
that he might be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And all of this requires a work of Christ in you, in me, to understand these things, to have spiritual understanding. So do you possess spiritual understanding? Can you articulate your own personal spiritual condition? Can you describe who Christ is and why He came to earth? Do you know God? What is what does it mean to have spiritual understanding? Well, in just a description, I suppose, it's not any kind of formal definition. When I think about spiritual understanding, spiritual understanding is to grasp the weight of God's revelation in Scripture and in His Son. God's revelation of Himself in Scripture and culminating in His Son concerning your spiritual condition and His redeeming grace. To have spiritual understanding is to grasp the weight of God's revelation in Scripture and in His Son concerning your spiritual condition and His redeeming grace. So, do you have spiritual understanding? And why is that question important? All of this is, again, simply by way of introduction. But why is the question important? Why do we need to grasp the weight of God's revelation? Why do we need to understand our spiritual condition and the redeeming of grace of God through Jesus Christ? Well, can I put this gently but yet clearly? Everyone in this room, everyone watching on the live stream or listening later, is terminal. Something, something, someday will kill you. You will die. You know, I I say that and uh, with full recognition, just thinking over this last few months, I've been thinking of the many in our assembly who have lost loved ones. And Yesterday, I was just kind of calculating and thinking about the families who have been affected in the last few months, the last week even, and, you know, roughly immediately came up with about 50 people in our assembly who have been confronted with the reality of death by the passing of close relatives or you extend that by the burdens that we carry of loved ones who are fighting sicknesses and diseases. Something's going to kill us. We're going to die. We're mortal. We're terminal. And because of that, we also know that from Scripture, everyone is going to live somewhere for eternity. We're going to leave this life, and we're going to be somewhere for all eternity. And, and what determines where we are for eternity is what we do with the Son of God. There's nothing in this world that will prepare you to die. There's nothing in this world that will prepare you for eternity. Do not love the world, John says in 1 John chapter 2, because the world is passing away and all its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. There's nothing in this world that will prepare you to die. 
There's nothing in this world that will prepare you for eternity. Only the one who defeated death and only the one who is himself eternal will prepare you for death and eternity. You must listen to, you must believe in Christ. He must open your ears. He must open your heart. He must open your eyes that you may understand. And what we find in Scripture in so many ways and ways that we'll see from this passage this morning is that the Lord does that. The disciples in Luke 24, verse 45, after Jesus had been raised from the dead and Jesus was preparing them to preach Him, were told that He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. If we move further on in our Scriptures, we find in Acts 16, when Paul is in Philippi and he goes down to the river where some ladies are gathered and he speaks to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're told that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And the next sentence records her baptism as a converted person. You must listen to Christ, and Christ must open your heart. As we come to the second miracle of the Lord providing food for a massive amount of people, we find that the disciples should have learned spiritual principles from these miracles of the feeding. And yet they're slow to understand. If you turn back to chapter 6 and look at verse 52, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then as they are in the boat, in the storm, Jesus appears to them walking on the water. The end of that passage says, at the end of verse 51 and verse 52, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And then, if you look at chapter 8, part of the passage where we are this morning, Again, Jesus addresses them when they completely misunderstand his warning about the leaven of the Pharisees. And Jesus says to them in verse 18, "'Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up?' And they said, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So what we find in, in Scripture recorded twice in conjunction with these miracles, the repeated miracle of Jesus providing food, is that there are spiritual lessons that the disciples were to get, and yet they were slow of understanding. And Mark is leading, as he leads us to the confession of Peter and what, to follow, what, what is to follow, he's, he's showing, he's demonstrating for us the, the dullness and the density of the human heart that, that even in the, in, in the face of these miracles of the deaf hearing, the lepers being cleansed, demons being cast out, 
participating in the feeding of multitudes miraculously, there's a lack of understanding. And there's a reason that this account, these first 21 verses, are bookended by the opening of the ears of the deaf man and the opening of the eyes of the blind man. And Jesus says it, he ties it all together again in verse 18 when he says, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? To grasp the eternal realities, to grasp the, the, the fullness of who Christ is, Christ must open your ears. Christ must open your eyes. Christ must open your heart. And so this section... These first 21 verses of chapter 8, this section emphasizes that when we get to Peter's confession did not come from a natural understanding. He didn't figure this out on his own. It came because of a divine work in his heart. Christ opened his heart, or as Christ said in Matthew, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Christ opened the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind, but what we find in this passage is that the Pharisees and disciples still remain dull and unbelief, even in the face of mighty acts of divine power. Christ must open your heart. So this morning, as we look at this passage, the theme is that Christ must open your heart. And we'll consider these two sections under two main points this morning. First, in verses 1 through 10, as Jesus miraculously provides bread and fish for the multitude, we'll see that Jesus graciously displays His deity. He does what only God can do. Jesus graciously displays His deity through abundant provision. But then in verses 11 through 21, we'll note that unbelief keeps you from resting in Christ. Unbelief keeps you from resting in Christ. And the answer to our unbelief is that Christ must open our heart. So Jesus graciously displays His deity through abundant provision Yet unbelief keeps you from resting in Christ. So let's consider this first of all from this wonderful, compassionate demonstration of God's mighty abundance, His gracious provision, that Jesus graciously displays His deity through His abundant provision. Look at the beginning of the passage. You'll note in verse 1, that a great crowd has gathered, and they had nothing to eat. And then in verse 2, as Jesus addresses His disciples, He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is we have a great crowd of people, 4,000 minimum, 
Perhaps it's only the 4,000 men that are counted, so it could be exponentially higher as far as the total number of people. They've been with the Lord in, in a wilderness place, listening to his teaching. The food is gone. They're hungry. They're needy to the point that Jesus doesn't want to send them away because they, they don't have strength to get back to their homes. They have nothing. And, you know, when you're reading Scripture, when you're reading a passage like this, you look for statements that are repeated like that. They had nothing to eat. Mark says they had nothing to eat. Jesus says they have nothing to eat. But the contrast then, the miracle, is in verse 8. After establishing that reality, Jesus works... And in verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. And what takes place in the intervening verses? Well, Jesus establishes this need very clearly with His disciples. After He calls His disciples to them and expresses His deep compassion for the people, His disciples answer him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. So he had them take inventory, right? We're just confirming and establishing the need. They have nothing to eat. They're weak. They're tired. What do you have on hand? Seven small barley loaves, right? We're not even talking about going to Panera and getting a French loaf, Seven small barley loaves for thousands and thousands of people. Yet Jesus says, have them sit down. And He breaks, and His disciples come, and they bring it to the people, and they come back, and they bring it to the people, and they come back, and they bring it to the people, and they come back, and they bring it to the people until everyone eats, not not a rationed amount, but they eat until they're satisfied. And there's so much abundance that there are seven hamperfuls left over. Those baskets are the same baskets that Paul was let down over the city wall in. Large baskets, large abundance of food. Jesus is graciously displaying His deity through His abundant provision. And within this, we see His deep compassion. The Lord is providing for people, people who will not believe in Him, people perhaps who will even reject Him and contribute to the cry that He be crucified, and yet He is compassionate on their physical needs and He abundantly provides. Oh, the compassion of our Lord is infinite. He's patient. Think about what He's doing with His disciples. They've already experienced the feeding once, and they're, and they're asking, well, how are we going to do this? Well, don't you remember? We've, it's happened before. And He's teaching His disciples His power, but beyond that, As he prepares them to preach the word of God, he's teaching them that what they offer is not from themselves, it is from him who is the bread of life. They must receive from Christ 
to be able to minister to the needs of those to whom they preach. And so when we look at this miracle, we find that Jesus is the good shepherd. As Jesus graciously displays his deity through abundant provision, there's much more than just what's happening in this particular time that's taking place. There is a, there is a large scope of fulfillment that Christ is accomplishing as he is indeed the good shepherd. It's interesting that both of these accounts of his feeding of the multitudes take place in contrast with Herod. The first one comes right after Herod's banquet. We, we read of Herod's banquet of death, and then we have Christ's banquet of grace. And then in this miracle, immediately following the miracle, there's interaction with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones that are supposed to be the, the spiritual shepherds of Israel, and yet they're denying the reality of the Son of God. They're denying who He is and His authority. And so Jesus, as the good shepherd, as we're seeing these miracles recorded, He is the good shepherd in contrast to the political rulers of the day, in contrast to Herod, who is self-gratifying in his desires and in the way that he rules. And in contrast to the religious leaders of the day who are self-righteous in their, in their leadership and in what they're trying to establish, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd that no political leader could ever be. He is the good shepherd that no religious leader who imposes external religious rights on people can ever be. He is the good shepherd in contrast to those whom the people looked to. But more than that, Jesus is the good shepherd also in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Probably the first passage that comes to your mind when you hear good shepherd is Psalm 23. Let's go ahead and turn to that precious passage of Scripture, Psalm 23, and think about the words of that psalm as you think about the fulfillment of Christ, the Good Shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows." Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of those promises, all of those comforts, they're found and they're fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is my shepherd. He is my comforter. He is my supplier. 
And when we work our way through the pages of the Old Testament, we find that the Lord consistently indicted those who were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel for their failure to lead the people. And so the Old Testament is preparing us to receive and to identify the one who is the good shepherd, the one who is the fulfillment of these promises. And if you turn to another Old Testament passage on our way back to Mark, turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Here at Micah, Micah consists of three sermons, the record of three sermons And the middle sermon in chapters 3 through 5 is an indictment on the shepherds of Israel. But in chapter 5, we're promised of the one who would be the coming ruler for Israel. The common verse that we know from Christmas time in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel." whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. But then if you run your eyes to verse 4, there's a further description of this one. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his people and he cares for even those who are not his people by providing compassionately for them. When we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we find Jesus is the fulfillment of this by statement. And we won't turn there, but John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd but then also by the works that he does as he provides abundantly and cares for the people. Jesus is the good shepherd, and as the good shepherd, Jesus meets physical and spiritual needs. Jesus meets physical and spiritual needs. We find very clearly and evidently how Jesus meets the physical needs here as he multiplies the loaves and the fish, miraculously, ready-made food. And, and, you know, think about what's taking place here. They don't have McDonald's, which I know is poison, but they don't have any kind of food source that they can just run to, right? What, what's part of the curse? Part of the curse is that we, we eat bread by the sweat of our face, You have to grow the bread, you have to grind the grain, you have to put together the flour and bake the bread, and there's a whole process involved with that, and and here it's instant bread. That was unknown. Instant fish, ready to eat, a bread and fish buffet right there in the wilderness, miraculously provided by the Son of God. Why is this possible? Well... Listen to these passages. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
He created all things. All things were created through him. He rules all things. And everything that exists is upheld by the word of the power of Jesus Christ. Folks, when you understand that, six-day literal creation, no problem. No problem. Feeding a few thousand people, no problem. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And we're told in Job, Job chapter 34, verses 14 and 15, speaking of God, who Christ is, if he should set his heart to do it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. We're entirely reliant on God. We're entirely reliant on Jesus Christ. He is the source and the sustainer of all physical life. And he's demonstrating graciously and powerfully his deity through the abundant provision. But Jesus is not only the one who is the source and sustainer of our physical life. Jesus is the bread of life from heaven. And after the first miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, the people came to him again and he said, you're coming to me because you got free lunch. So you're missing the point. And they said, well, you know, we want a sign. You're thinking, a sign? <laughs> it just ate. You know, Moses gave us manna from heaven. And Jesus says, no, my father gave you manna from heaven. And I am the bread of life. I am the bread of heaven and he culminates that statement in verse 35 when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ, as, as the bread from heaven, is the fulfillment of the picture of the manna in the wilderness, the manna that the Lord provided for his people. He's the fulfillment of that. And he also is the one who will be broken in his own body. He will be broken for your sin and for my sin on the cross. And as he blesses the food here in Mark chapter 8, look at the middle of verse 6. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. And, he, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before him. The taking of the bread, the blessing of the bread, the breaking of the bread is very similar to what happens in Mark 14, verse 22, where as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Jesus meets physical and spiritual needs. He is the bread from heaven. And this miracle, while it was providing out of his compassion for the physical needs of the multitude, was pointing to the greater sacrifice of his body for the forgiveness of sins. His body was broken. His blood was, was spilled for you in your place. 
So when we look at this miracle, we find that Jesus' provision of bread for the multitude displayed His deity. It fulfilled Old Testament types of provision of bread, and it anticipated the breaking of His body as the substitutionary Lamb of God. What do, what do we learn from that? Well, you know, when we, when we think about this comforting, gracious picture of God's abundant provision in Christ, these words of Christ from Matthew 6 become so precious to us and instructive. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus graciously displays His deity through His abundant provision, and we have nothing to fear. Christ will care for us. He cares for His people. And the day that we die, the day that He calls us home, the day that our physical life is over, we simply pass into His eternal care forever and forever based on the breaking of His body for us. Well, we come now to these responses. And, you know, when you're reading narrative passages of Scripture, it's so important to read through the whole thing because often the accounts that are set together are themselves instructive in helping us to understand the whole picture of what is happening. And so we have, you know, taken by itself, this account of the Pharisees seems out of place. But when we consider what's just happened... When we consider what, who Christ is and, and the progression of, of the narrative, it makes sense. Jesus has demonstrated who He is, and as is so common through the Gospels, we find unbelief as the response. Unbelief is the response. We spent a good amount of time thinking about God's compassion to us through Christ, His kindness, His provision, all of these wonderful things of who Christ is. And yet, how slow are we to trust? How fast are we to be anxious? What's happening? Well, people are the same. They don't change. The root, the root of our struggle is unbelief. And so in these... Next two accounts, the, the heading that we see is that unbelief keeps you from resting in Christ. Immediately following this, this miracle, again, Jesus leaves the crowds. He's continuing to uh, run away, if you will, from those who would make him a political figure and a political ruler. Jesus is not a political figure. He is not a political ruler. And it is heinous when people take the name of Christ and throw it into the public arena like some magic potion to, to transform society. That's not why Christ came to this earth. He left the crowds. He came to deal with sin. He came to, that people might be saved. He came that the gospel would be proclaimed around the world until He returns. 
And so he left the crowds, and immediately he's confronted by the Pharisees. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, why does, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. We're confronted here by the unbelief of hypocrisy. The unbelief of hypocrisy. Unbelief keeps you from resting in Christ. And in this account of the Pharisees, we have the unbelief of hypocrisy. The Pharisees never question the miracles of Christ. What Jesus is doing when he's feeding the thousands, when he's cleansing lepers, when he's raising up people to walk, when he's casting out demons, when he's healing people with withered hands, when he's raising people from the dead, this is well-known and well-attested. The Pharisees don't argue against that. They don't even argue when Lazarus is raised from the dead. They're concerned only to overthrow the authority of Christ because the authority of Christ is undermining their own self-righteous hypocrisy. And so they are... They are hardened in their unbelief, and, and as they come, verse 11, they argue with him. They're argumentative. They're not coming to learn from Christ. They're coming to test Christ in an unbelieving way. They're asking questions, not in order to believe, but in order to establish their own self-righteousness. And as Jesus says in Matthew 23, they are hypocrites. They are an evil generation that is seeking a sign. They're seeking Christ at their own demand. This is the unbelief of hypocrisy. What, what do we find about this kind of unbelief from the Pharisees? Well, hypocrites ignore clear revelation and they demand Jesus according to their own terms while defying his authority. They came to argue and they tested him. Give us a sign. Give us the sign we want. The signs that you're doing, they're on earth, and we think we can attribute those to the power of the devil. We need a sign from heaven. Well, the Father's already spoken from heaven. Jesus said already in John chapter 6, I am the bread from heaven. But hypocrites refuse to believe, and they demand Jesus on their own terms. They fail to see their own neediness, and instead they become hostile toward the one who alone can meet their most desperate need. Hypocrites refuse to submit to Christ, and Christ refuses to satisfy hypocrites. Jesus says in very strong terms, oath-like terms, out of the groaning of his spirit because of the hardness of their unbelief. No, no sign is going to be given to you. The only thing that would do is confirm your unbelief. And I will not, I will not engage with those who are hardened in their unbelief. I refuse to satisfy hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is from the pit of hell. It's driven by pride and produces a critical spirit. How critical? Well, the Pharisees and their hypocrisy found fault with the sinless Son of God. 
That's the epitome of the unbelief of hypocrisy, a pride that exhibit itself in a critical spirit. But what's, what's driving this? Why, why does hypocrisy have to promote itself and have such a critical spirit? Well, very simply, hypocrisy depends on appearances. Hypocrisy depends on appearances. And it has to do everything to appear better than everyone else. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, their religion was an appearance. And so they had to cut down anything that might challenge their appearance of righteousness. I like this definition from the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament. Hypocrisy is a sin which is exposed by our Lord as no other because it corrupts the conscience, averting holiness of life. It substitutes the ceremonial and formal for the personal and practical. It uses ecclesiastical rule as a substitute for judgment and the love of God. It cannot receive the truth because its eye is on man and not on God. It makes inquiries not in order to hear the truth, but in order to refute it. It is chained to its error by a confident assurance that it alone is right. Hypocrisy stands in opposition to faith as it works to debase the whole man, just as faith works to regenerate him. We could put it in these terms from Scripture. Hypocrites are swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Hypocrites manage appearances while their hearts remain cavernous chambers of spiritual emptiness. Unbelief keeps you from resting in Christ. And there is not a more tumultuous form of unbelief than hypocrisy that has to keep up appearances while the inside is burdened with guilt and in turmoil to project what is a lie. And the Pharisees are the epitome of such unbelief, refusing hard-hearted in their rejection of Christ. But then we come to the disciples. We're told as they're leaving, they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And in that context, Jesus cautions them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they completely missed the point. Do we not have enough bread? The flow of questions that come from him, it's, it's just, it's like he's astounded. Do you not understand? What's going on? Do you not see? Do you not perceive? And the, the reality, the sad reality, the convicting reality, as we look at Christ as the good shepherd and his provision for all of our needs, for our eternal salvation, How often do we miss the spiritual lessons, the important things that the Word of God teaches us because of a dullness in our own hearts? 
We've seen that the unbelief of, of hypocrisy and the disciples here demonstrate an unbelief of immaturity. John Calvin says, some portion of unbelief is always mixed with faith in every Christian. That's encouraging when somebody like John Calvin says that. Samuel Rutherford, the warm Puritan, said this, I am made of unbelief and cannot but swim, but where my feet may touch the ground. (laughs) Now, the unbelief of immaturity, these disciples have been following Christ. They've experienced His provision over and over and over again. And yet when He warns them, about the leaven, the wickedness of the Pharisees and the wickedness of Herod, they completely misinterpret what he's saying. And this is what growth in Christ does. Right? This is why you're here this morning, I assume. This is why we love to gather together because we recognize the residual unbelief in our heart and our need to grow in the Lord Jesus, our need for God's Word to deal with our unbelief and to conform our minds to the mind of Jesus. And so growth in Christ deals with that residual unbelief of the flesh. And what does that look like based on this passage? Well, residual unbelief will gravitate toward appearances, just like hypocrisy. And this is the warning that Jesus gives. Look at the passage again in verse 15. He cautioned them saying, watch out. There's a a directness and an intensity and an urgency to what he's saying here. Look out, beware. I'm putting caution tape on the edge of a spiritual precipice. Watch out for the evil leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And what he's speaking of when we look at other passages is that tendency toward hypocrisy, that tendency toward valuing appearances over substance. Remember, Peter had to be rebuked by Paul in Galatians 2 for that very reason. And it expresses itself so often in self-satisfied self-righteousness or as Herod and self-gratifying lifestyles. Flee the lust of the flesh, Paul tells Timothy. Jesus is warning, warning the disciples, you, you need to beware of this in your own heart. And Jesus does not waste words. If Jesus says, watch out, beware of this kind of wickedness, beware of this kind of gravitation toward hypocrisy, then we need to take note. We need to understand that is the propensity of our own heart to value appearances, to value what is not substantial, to value what people think about us more than what God knows about us. And folks, it is an exhausting way to live. If your life is looking around and looking what this person's doing, looking what that person's doing and trying to live up to this and trying to live up to that and and managing your religious appearances so nobody thinks ill of you, that is a mark of unbelief. That is a mark of Pharisaism. That is the residual unbelief in your heart that you need to turn away from. It is spiritually destructive. The disciples completely missed it because... Residual unbelief also focuses on physical concerns to the complete missing of spiritual realities and spiritual warnings. 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Oh, do, is he talking about we don't have enough bread? Their, their minds are on the earth. Now you've been raised up with Christ. Seek those things that are above. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. If, the, if your Lord knows how to take care of the birds and the grass, will he not more take care of you? Oh, you of little faith. A residual unbelief focuses on physical concerns. And our residual unbelief also forgets past provisions. As Jesus identifies their lack of understanding, their lack of perception, the hardness of their hearts, right? He, he brings their minds back to the miracles that he's performed. Do you not remember? Do you not remember the abundance of my provision? I mean, there's, what, 13 of us on this boat and one loaf of bread? Don't you remember how I fed thousands? Oh, how often we forget the past provisions of the Lord. Why, why are we here today? It's because God has provided for our needs so abundantly and over and over and over. Jesus identifies that these issues are coming from a lack of understanding, coming from hard hearts, coming from an inability to see and to hear. You know, this is, this is one of the joys of serving the Lord in a pastoral role is seeing how God works as people come to hear the word of God week in and week out as they come as they come to serve the Lord in different ways throughout the week as they interact with one another and they grow and you see how God continues to shape their minds and strengthen their faith and and deal with the residual unbelief that we all have to a confident, stable faith in the Good Shepherd. Oh, we need the Lord's help. We need Him to open our eyes. We need this to be our prayer. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then this wonderful promise from Jeremiah 32, 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. What promises, what provisions from the Lord that he is the one who opens our hearts. He gives us new hearts. He gives us understanding that we might rest in him. And for those of us who are with young families and seeking to rear our families for the Lord, how important it is that we learn to have our eyes fixed on the Lord, to fear Him forever, for our good and for the good of our children after us. Well, we're moving towards some more rich passages, but I trust that today we will leave rejoicing rejoicing that it is indeed Christ who must open our heart and that when he teaches us, when we receive the good things of the word of God, when he strengthens our faith, it's the evidence of his divine work in our lives. He is the good shepherd. He graciously displays his deity through his abundant provision. Unbelief keeps us from Christ. 
But Christ is the overcomer of unbelief. And today you might be a person who is totally entangled in hypocrisy. Drop the appearances. Turn to Christ. You need the substance of faith in Christ, not the appearance of self-righteousness. And where we've been convicted of our own unbelief, turn to Christ. Jesus encourages his disciples. Look at verse 21. You know, it's, it's amazing how one little word can be so encouraging. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? As we continue to pursue Christ, as we continue to follow our good shepherd, he shepherds our souls, he gives us rest, and we confidently entrust ourselves to him. Lord, thank you today for the word that you have given to us in the scriptures and through your son. We are so abundantly blessed. We've hardly scratched the surface of the riches of your word today. And we thank you for the work of the Spirit of God to give us understanding. We pray that you would help us to not be hearers only, but also doers of the word for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.